Hello, and welcome to Transformation Talks, a Lira Health's podcast series exploring transformational technologies in healthcare and life sciences around the world. I'm Kenny Carberry, Associate Director of Clinical Development at Alira Health, a global healthcare consulting company providing services across fully integrated practices, including product development, regulatory, clinical CRO, global market access, real-world evidence, patient engagement, advanced analytics, strategy consulting, and transaction advisory. Today, we'll be talking about pricing in medtech, specifically disentangling the role of payers, diagnosis-related groups, or DRGs, and procurement in Europe. We have a couple of guests with us today, including Dan Legg, who is a former director of clinical sourcing at Guy's and St. Thomas Hospital Trust in London, where he managed and supported a team of seven sourcing managers to deliver clinical CIP savings plans across five NHS trusts in South London. Dan is also now the founder of QuantMed UK, a company he created to help healthcare companies navigate the UK market. Dan, hello. Hi, uh, hi Kenny. Thanks, uh, thanks for inviting me on. Also with us is our very own Richard Charter, Lira Health's Vice President of MedTech Market Access across Europe and Asia Pacific. Hello, Richard. Hi, everyone. Hi, Kenny. Hi, Dan. So, Dan, uh, there have been some recent legislative changes to CCGs uh, in, in the UK, and I'm wondering if maybe you could give us a little overview, uh, your take on what's going on, what's different, uh, and kind of introduce that topic for us today. Sure. Thanks, Kenny. Um so yeah, sort of historically, the NHS has really been uh, a siloed approach between the uh, acute and secondary sector, i.e., the uh, the the buyer and um, the provider of services, and then the CCG or Clinical Commissioning Group, who are the ones that go out commission uh, NHS hospitals to to provide uh, services, so i.e., the, the payer. Um, it has really created a, a siloed approach between the two groups, and um, this new legislation will start to, to break that down. Um, really, with the introduction of ICSs or integrated care systems, it really just brings about a partnership, and it's mainly around the budget. So historically, uh, the, the commissioners would have their, their budget to go out and procure a, a service for, for the local um, you know, patient body, the community, and um, the various different NHS acute trusts would then uh, bid for that for that work, and um, it just created a, a bit of a more of a competition, uh, which is a little bit of a strange dynamic, especially for us in the UK uh, coming from a, a public sector background. You know, it's uh, obviously a publicly funded. Uh, healthcare system. So we think that the ICSs will really break that that barrier down. Um, we've already seen some examples in Manchester where it's got a huge number of trusts. I think it's somewhere in the region of about 12 or 13 hospitals um, that are that are working as one. And and this will, yeah, the, the ICSs really do break down that barrier and, and get everyone working together and, and delivering the best care for, for the patient, which is obviously the, the ultimate goal. Was it difficult getting those hospitals to work together, uh, sort of getting them going? Or how did that, was that a smooth transition? Um, certainly not a smooth transition. Um, yeah, it's, it's a difficult one. You know, um, I think with what was known as the uh, introduction of foundation NHS trust, um, so, so many years ago, probably about 14 or 15 years ago now, um, really did create a level of competition. And um, like I say, that, that siloed effect. Um, I can speak personally from a procurement perspective. Um, it's always been pretty tricky trying to get 
consensus across a clinical group within your own you know nhs hospital let alone 12 or 13 and um yeah the ics's really do try to bring together uh, a group of clinicians so representatives from each of the nhs trusts and really try to drive a decision that will uh, ultimately help uh, both the patient having a, a, a standardized level of care and maybe that's down to kind of product level so that you, you've not got multiple different suppliers and products that you that everyone needs training on um, and then second of all um, it's then driving uh, some some great commercial benefits um, you know there's been some some good examples in in south South London uh, around cardiology of that more recently um, with with a group of sort of five or six NHS trusts coming together and uh, yes yeah, selecting a, a primary group of, of providers so yeah it's uh, certainly not easy but um yeah the, the clinical councils as part of the ICS definitely help great thank you for that and and Richard what's what's your take on the situation and and what are you seeing yeah, so I, I think that this is uh, um, an evolution, if you will. I mean, a lot of these changes are already in place, albeit maybe not quite as legislated as what they're going to be coming into the into the forthcoming years. But I think that I think they they're they're fitting uh, into a transition that's occurring around the world, which is more uh, what we call the value-based type of approach, which is where both economic and clinical considerations are looked at in tandem. Um, you know, as many people will know, I'm a strong advocate of, you know, the value-based healthcare approach to uh, care delivery. And I think that, you know, these integrated care systems really allow uh, healthcare systems to cross those clinical and budget silos to drive the improved patient outcome. Uh, and I think that's going to be the, the, the true litmus test of these is whether or not they actually do do that. Um, when we look at healthcare systems like Wales, for example, they're doing a stellar job of of uh, linking these up. So the fact that the NHS in, in England is moving this direction, I think, is a very positive sort of step. I also think it creates a lot of interesting opportunities for medtech companies that are looking to launch into various countries within Europe. Um, you know, it just gives them the ability to articulate that value across the patient pathway, drive more savings for the overall healthcare system and then improve those end patient outcomes in a more in a more concrete and robust way. So I think they're pretty positive, but they are also an evolution and we'll have to see how they evolve over the coming years. Yeah, so to, to Richard's point, I, I think that um, yeah, some great examples already in, in the NHS of value-based procurement already starting to be recognised, um, specifically with, within England. Um, we know you know, from from the past, historically, uh, directors of finance at a, at a local NHS trust level will be very much sort of uh, focused on the savings and the commercial benefits out their local trust. And with the ICS, this really does open out um, this sort of shared benefits and and really being able to drive added value. And and we saw that through through the cardiology tender that I, that I mentioned earlier, um, and it helped to drive things like. Uh, the development of a remote uh, monitoring platform that would be used across the whole of Southeast London. And I think prior to, to the ICS and, and the clinical councils coming into situ, I, I just failed to see but, you know, if, if that would have actually taken place. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's just great to see value-based procurement actually being recognised by, by directors of finance and, and the wider community. Dan, do you think that something like a remote monitoring platform uh, is that born out of necessity from pandemic era, or is that something that so is that something that value-based 
uh, care would have accelerated? Yeah. Um, so one of the, one of the benefits, one of the few benefits of COVID has been, yeah, to to drive um, the digitization of healthcare in in the UK, um, and and certainly you know from just using something like Microsoft Teams or Zoom to hold meetings, uh, right through to yeah intro, introduction of of new platforms, um, yeah it has really accelerated that, and uh, yeah it's it's kind of great to see and. Yeah, I think there was always a demand for something like a, a remote monitoring platform, or certainly over the last few years. But yeah, the pandemic has, has certainly accelerated that. Yeah, and I think, Kenny, I think just to add to that as well, I mean, when we look at the digitization of healthcare, uh, COVID is, has, you know, you know, mostly out of necessity, accelerated that. And, you know, when you look at the sort of the key drivers, if you will, of the value-based healthcare sort of school of thought, if you will, you know, having an enabling IT platform is one of the key sort of fundamental underpinnings to that. So as soon as you start using more digital technology, that that that's going to become more acute, and and therefore, you know, the efficiencies can be gained across the system. Um, and I think that from a costing perspective, which is obviously where procurement and DRGs really come into this. I mean, um, it's going to give both manufacturers, the hospitals. This, the the payer themselves, all of these different stakeholders, a much more granular level uh, data driven approach to understanding where that where that cost savings can really be made. So, you know, when when certainly in the UK with with organizations like SCCO, which is now sort of the national sort of procurement organization, you know, they really mandate you know articulating the value proposition in two ways for med tech companies. What are the cash releasing savings? So can you essentially save on that budget line item? And then the second one is what are the cost avoidance downstream over a sort of budget time frame that that medical technology can release for from a from from a therapeutic area perspective? You cannot do that without digital information. You cannot do that without the the data driven approach. So I think that you know that this sort of COVID pandemic, if you will, and this new uh, uh, initiative to move towards integrated care systems in the UK is taking that that digital approach that is needed from a Roma patient monitoring perspective, accelerating it, and then pushing that into the digital uh, data capture that can be used in, in other more holistic ways. So, like I said, I think it's a very positive moment, and I I, I would sort of commend the UK or, or specifically England for doing this at a time when digital is now becoming sort of the one of the key backbones to care delivery so um i don't know, i think it's a pretty exciting time and as i said i think it's up to med tech companies to really capitalize this on the way they can so richard uh as discussed in, in the introduction here um you know the main topic for discussion is you know, disentangling the role of payers drgs and, and procurement so maybe you could give us a quick overview on how those uh stakeholders all come together and, and what their roles are yeah, sure. So, I mean, th this is a pretty interesting topic right now, certainly in England, uh, and I'll turn it over to Dan for more for, for more granularity on the procurement side. But I, I think something that often gets uh, sort of misclassified is this, this DRG sort of uh, market access perspective. What do I mean by that? So, you know, the DRG is really not a payment in of itself. It's more of a currency basket or a currency bundle, if you will, that provides the hospital to be remunerated by the payer who is at present the CCGs in the UK. So the question for medtech companies on this always comes down to, you know, will the pricing strategy of the medtech company fit within that DRG? And then this is of course, assuming they have the, 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 the coverage and coding already available and their product fits within those confines as well. 
but by by making sure that the pricing strategy fits within the DRG can significantly streamline that launch solution. Uh, within Europe overall, about 70% of all medical technologies reach the, the patient or the healthcare worker through some form of procurement mechanism. But the procurement mechanism simply allows it to fit within the DRG itself. And then, of course, the, the, the hospital will get uh, remunerated by the by the payer, in this case, the CCG. So, you know, I think I think, you know, the, the, the prudent focal point for med tech companies is to get into that sort of procurement lens such that it fits within the DRG. Um, and what's evolving in this space, and this is where I'll turn it over to Dan, is that you know we're seeing a, a shift on procurement teams moving away from a price-only focus towards more of a value-based focus. And that's where the procurement criteria themselves are more based on clinical outcomes and then total costs across the care pathway that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, are linked to both the cash releasing and the cost avoidance um, for, for, for the technology itself. So, Dan, I don't know if there's anything you want to add on the procurement side for that, but you know that that's sort of how we're seeing the linkage right now. Sure, yeah, definitely, Richard. I think you hit on the the kind of yeah provider angle and how I guess historically a lot of med tech companies have have approached the market, which isn't to say it's the the wrong approach, but I think when you get into procurement, into the acute setting, into the secondary care, um, you have to realise you know the the kind of KPIs that we're measured on. So um, yeah, just to my earlier point, I mean, historically, directors of finance will just be, all they'll really be bothered about is the cash releasing savings. So how does it affect our bottom line? Um, you know, the, the trusts have been under severe pressure from um, multiple different governments who have, um, yeah, really sort of um, driven this, this process where it's almost been a race to the bottom with with some technologies in terms of costings, and um, procurement's got to a stage where you know the the cost improvement program or SIPs um, as it's known in in the UK, um, you kind of I guess you get to a point where there's only so many ways and times you can skin a cat, um, you know um, if you're talking about an orthopedic implant for example, um, there comes a point where you can't save any further on a unit cost. Um, and you know, in my in my time as as director at, uh, of sourcing at Guys and Tommy's, um, you know, we were approached all the time with with different solutions. Um, and the one thing that I guess med tech companies kind of failed to 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 um, quantify was, you know, how is that going to benefit us from a commercial perspective? Um, you know, I, I worked in the NHS for close to sixteen years. Um, you know. For, for me, I was very passionate and still am very passionate about, um, you know, the, the patient seeing the benefits of innovative technology, um, obviously seeing those, those better outcomes. But my job and my team's job was to quantify those benefits. Um, you know, the, the director of finance and his team would obviously look at those business cases. If you can't quantify the benefit uh, as, a, as a supplier, as a med tech vendor, um, how do you expect me uh, you know, and anyone else in procurement to obviously relay and translate that message to, again, non-clinical people um, like the directors of finance who are just going to look at the, the numbers side of things. Um, so I think medtech med industry has done a great job of selling the benefits to the clinician. And again, no problem with that. Um, it's just more about how do we quantify that? So when I'm talking about that, you know, it's, it's things like, obviously, what is the uh, is there going to be a length of stay reduction 
can we see an increase in uh, day cases versus uh, patient uh, inpatient stays? Um, you know, procedure reduction. So is there a, um, a potential for increasing caseload and therefore revenue opportunity for, for the hospital? Um, you know, would it um, reduce infection rates? All these types of, of things. You know, if a supplier, a med tech company can quantify all of that uh, in some degree, then it just makes um, both their life and our life in procurement uh, much more straightforward because we can obviously quantify that to our to our colleagues in finance. Great, thank you, Dan. And maybe uh, you could elaborate a little further on that. I think um, if there are any specific, maybe a couple of recommendations that you would uh, say a med tech company should be able to provide or or investigate when launching a solution. Sure. So um, one thing I would say is that the vast majority of people in procurement are not going to be clinical coding experts. You know, we'll, we'll have an understanding of how clinical coding works, uh, some people more so than others. Um, so I think if if there's a way, you know, if you're able to, uh, again, identify the relevant tariff uh, that applies to that particular device, um, then then certainly that that is a big help. Um, you know, we're going to be liaising with the likes of um, general managers or budget holders that have got to obviously take in all of this different information and uh, yeah, try and make a decision around the, the clinical benefit and what it means to their to their bottom line, their their budget. Um, really, I think secondly, you know, is to engage with procurement early and often. So again. I think it's great that companies go out and, and engage with uh, with clinicians and sell the benefits of their of their product or platform. Uh, again, work with procurement, um, you know, to, to start quantifying those benefits um, and and also to ensure that there's a compliant route to market. So, uh, you know, there's this sort of changing legislation down due to due to Brexit, but again, you know, at the moment. The NHS is a public sector body, so we have to make sure that we go through a compliant uh, contract, um, so i.e. a framework agreement. Um, and then lastly, as I said before, it's just about quantifying the, the benefits, so whether they be uh, quantitative and or qualitative. Um, and again, just about developing a concise, robust business case. Um, I've seen some business cases that are like 15, 20 pages long that go into all the benefits um, clinically, and that's that's great. Uh, but those sorts of papers aren't for procurement and finance. This is about what are those benefits? How does it how does it um, either drive revenue or you know uh, reduce reduce the bottom line for for the trust? Uh, and it's f fair to say you know if if you need to. And, and highlight other benefits to the patient. Um, again, just, just make that really concise um, and, and to the point. And uh, yeah, I, I think that would be, uh, it will really help your cause. And you mentioned quickly uh, a framework agreement. Um, for those of us uh, in the US that don't deal with those all that often, uh, do you wanna just kind of give an overview on on how those are used and and, and what, what those are? Yeah, of course. Um, so commonly it's like a, a multi-supplier agreement, so almost like a, an approved supplier list. Um, so rather than 
uh, each and every trust, NHS trust in, in England, of which there's about 145 acute trusts, um, rather than all of those different organisations going out to tender and effectively uh, procuring the same device, um, there are a small number of organisations, central bodies, including uh, SCCL, who um, Richard mentioned earlier, who um, effectively tender on behalf of all of the public sector bodies, and it just allows other um, trusts, other uh, hospitals to then be able to um, basically call off or run a mini mini competition off the back of that framework agreement. So it's like I say, a, an approved list um, that generally lasts for about four years. Um, so it, it gives you again, um, sort of the, the ability to award contracts up to four years. Um, one thing I would add, suppliers can't actually be added to the majority of frameworks um, once they've actually been set in stone, which is a bit of a limiting um, limiting factor. So if you bought a new piece of technology to, to market in the UK, and unfortunately the contract is only say six months or 12 months into the framework, um, unfortunately you would have to wait until the uh, the expiration of, of that before you then can enter the, the new framework. Understood. Thank you. And and Richard, from a, a med tech company perspective, is is this something that the new company should be clamoring after, or is there a strategic time to try to approach one of these agreements? Yeah, I mean, as Dan said, I mean, they can be quite exclusive. If you get locked out, you can essentially be out for a for a number of years. Uh, I know there are some uh, providers who are the the analogy I will use is like leasing a spot, if you will, on these framework agreements and. Uh, you can essentially get your your solution in through one of these leaseholders through the framework. So there are some ways around it, but really it's always, you know, I would advise that you try to get to get get on that framework agreement by under your own merits. Um, otherwise, you just do run, run the risk of being locked out. And I think that's, you know, if, if we roll that back to a higher level, if we have all European countries doing this, I think it does beg the question of what does that mean for innovation in Europe? I mean, if essentially companies are locked out for two to four years on these framework agreements, then that's really disincentivizing innovation coming into Europe. And I think that there is a, uh, you know, granted it's a high level policy question, but I think it's a very material one. And that is, how do you get innovation into healthcare systems if essentially you're locked out for two to four years? Uh, so, you know, I, I think that these framework agreements are great when you're on them, but you need to be very cognizant of what your strategy becomes if in fact you cannot get onto them uh, and you have to wait a number of years in order to do so. And that's again where I think it's critical to have your your sort of your market access strategy well lined out in advance uh, and, and you and you undertake sort of what, what I consider to be the three key recommendations for, for med tech companies and that's you know define your clinical and economic value proposition early and then adapt it as you need to by engaging with clinical and economic stakeholders then mapping those stakeholders so you know which framework agreements you can or cannot be on in in the appropriate times and where that is around europe and then of course the last one if you cannot get onto those framework agreements what are the innovative funding pathways that medtech companies could potentially pursue in the event that the framework agreement is not accessible for x amount of time so you know, there's ways around it, but yeah, I mean, these framework agreements by any measure are, are critical for, for success in, in a med tech product launch. Yeah, I, I would agree, Richard. I was just going to add as well another point that um, in terms of um, sort of uh, different and in, in innovative ways to be able to enter the market, the other option would be to sort of approach maybe like a teaching trust um, who, you know, like guys in St. Thomas who I previously worked for, um, 
you know, they would be willing, I would say, if the technology is such that it's going to deliver, you know, a whole host of different benefits, um, you could potentially look at driving a proof of concept model um, and trust would be open to, to running a, I guess, from a purely legal perspective is a non-compliant exercise, but it's, it's just a, another way of being able to, uh, yeah, develop um, uh, an understanding of what that di different product or that solution can bring. Um, so I know that a number of trusts um, will will do that. And uh, that, that's actually, uh, Kenny, that's where, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, Alira Health has recently become accredited through NICE in the UK, which is essentially the health, uh, health technology assessment organization in, in, uh, in the UK here, or in England here specifically. Uh, and there are obviously um, analog organizations through many European countries, but you know we're accredited to sort of do that early dialogue for companies to do a gap assessment for both clinical and economic evidence so we can see exactly how that value proposition may or may not fit in such that you are qualified and ready to approach these teaching uh, trust hospitals such as what Dan just uh, Dan just mentioned. So, you know, I think it's again, it comes down to that planning early and making sure that clinical and economic value is is at least, um, uh, articulated, even if it's uh, in, in a simplistic way in the beginning, at least you've got that framework built for uh, for later stage dialogue. So, Richard, uh, it would be great if maybe you know now that we've learned a little bit uh, about you know med tech companies and their strategies here, um, if you could give us a quick minute on uh, how Alira Health specifically can assist with med tech companies in this space. Yeah, so uh, again, and I think, uh, and first of all, I want to thank Dan again for joining us on this call here. But, you know, so what, what Alira Health focuses on really is getting that sort of national level reimbursement strategy mapped out. So that's understanding the, the, the CCG or what will be the ICS strategy, how you engage with them and articulate value to them making sure your products can, where possible, fit within the existing DRGs. But then where we where we also like to take it one level further for our clients is to bring in experts like Dan, who've got that dedicated procurement focus, who can then help us to connect these dots. Because again, the, the, the value proposition to each of these key stakeholders can be quite different. So we like to make sure that we've got all of this brought together in a holistic value proposition that can be essentially packaged off and given to the various stakeholders as needed. So, um, you know, I think that's where experts like Dan come in and, and are of tremendous value to us. Thank you both so much for taking the time for an informative MedTech pricing discussion today. It was great having you both. Thanks again to Dan and Richard. And if you'd like to learn more about Alira Health, you can visit us at our website, alirahealth.com. That's A-L-I-R-A health.com. Thanks again and join us next time on Transformation Talks.